You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. favorite film <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy Sundays? Uh, <laughs> you've uh, you've never been on tinder have you Tello? <laughs> welcome to no dogs in space everybody my name's marcus parks i didn't know we were recording <laughs> and i'm carolina hidalgo <laughs> we're on to dead kennedy's part two so when we last left, Jello Biafra, East Bay Ray, Klaus Floride, and 6025, or 6025, however you want to say it, they'd just gotten in contact with Dirk Dirksen at the Mabuhe to begin the process of booking their first live show. Okay, let's just think about this in context. Everyone has a ridiculous name. <laughs> Remember, this is the 1970s in San Francisco. Okay, all right, sorry, I just gotta let it get that out. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. You, we no- not normalize this too much. <laughs> Problem was, Dead Kennedys had a great fucking name, but not a drummer. So a frenzied audition process began that was all the more urgent because Dirk Dirksen had given the band a slot at the Mabuhe in just two weeks' time. We only have two weeks, man. <laughs> they really, yeah, they really... Oh, we're gonna, did... we're gonna save the community center in two weeks. I know. <laughs> we need $5,000. Uh, <laughs> so they auditioned several drummers, like uh, the guy who showed up with all the swastikas. Well, that's what they said, that he was a fantastic drummer, but he was a Nazi. And so you have to say goodbye to the Nazi. It's like, well, <laughs> God damn it, he's, can we do... No, we can't. We can't have a Nazi in the group. I just find it hilarious that some guy is like, you know, I have an interview, I have an audition, what should I wear? <laughs> and he's looking at his closet and he's like, I've got it. I've got it. They're going to think I'm so cool. <laughs> Very edgy. <man. laughs> so, yeah, they, they went through a bunch of drummers, but then there was Bruce Lessinger, a.k.a. Ted, who moved from New York after graduating from the Pratt Institute of Architecture. Ted, he had lots of drumming experience. Like, he'd been playing since he was a young guy, you know, doing, like, marching band, uh, uh, playing in, like, bands with his friends. Like, he started at, at the age of 12 all the way into his teenage years. So when he moved to San Francisco, he looked up ads at the Aquarius record store, and one of them said, Dead Kennedys, looking for a drummer. And he thought... 
Hell no. <laughs> what kind of band name is that? I could be in a fucking band called Dead Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> but then a short time later, Ted decided to put up his own ad as a drummer looking for a band. And the only person who answered the ad was the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go and audition. And he did. And they all realized it was like a great match. Ted saw that Klaus and East Bay Ray, they were like really great musicians. And they in turn loved Ted because he was the first drummer to rush them on their songs instead of dragging them. Yeah, because it's 1978. You know, not everybody had heard the first Ramones record or at that point, the second or third Ramones record. Uh, So like playing fast wasn't necessarily the de rigueur. It wasn't what everybody was like expected to do. So having a guy show up and say, no, let's go faster. Let's go faster was perfect for this band exactly that's why klaus like he grabbed a beer he handed it to ted he said you want to be in the dead kennedys <laughs> Fine. <laughs> all right no, not chin no change no room no wiggle room on that name huh no way no how <laughs> fine and then they told ted the good news is that well we also have a gig next week <laughs> and they're like all right we'll we'll start practicing from now until then yeah which they did they did. Now, unlike, say, the Stooges, whose first show was a psychedelic noise parade, remember the fucking Osterizer, which is just a blender with water in it. <laughs> and a microphone and inside. And a microphone inside, of course. It's got three parts. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, the Ramones, whose first show ended with Joey falling down a fucking flight of stairs. Dead Kennedys, they came out of the gate already knowing what the fuck they were doing. Even though Ted only had a week in the band, and even though 6025 had never played in front of an audience before, Klaus, with 10 years' experience playing live, along with East Bay Ray and Jello, they knew how to put on a fucking show. They really did. Immediately. Yes, I know. It's crazy. They were a band for, what, a few months? And then they, they just got together, and they, they just immediately knew. Like, it's almost they weeded out all the Nazis, apparently, <laughs> and they got the right ones. So they did the live show July 19th, 1978, at the Mabuhai Gardens, uh, opening for the Offs. They're, they're good friends. And they were the third band out of four, so they only had the 20-minute set, which was pretty normal back then. And it was good because they only had seven songs. Yeah. The guys said that their first show, like, they were, like, terrified, and but they were also really excited. Of course. And they were so excited that they finished their set really early. <laughs> they played a 20-minute set in 15 minutes. Just about. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. I, I, that's happened to me when I'm like, looks like I'm out of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you from the area? <laughs> it gets weird. <laughs> So during their performance, Jello like ran around the tables. He was not shy about confronting the audience. Very Alan Vega from from Suicide. Yeah, but uh, not as confrontational. Like it was confrontational, but confrontational in a fun way. Yes. Like Alan Vega was trying to make people uncomfortable. It was like an art piece, you know, to really put your face in the audience and fucking yell at him. But <laughs> de- with but Jello Biafra, it was more of a collaborative type of piece. Yeah, he was trying to be uh, clever and also, yeah, get the audience to participate. Yeah. And so they can all be in it together, which made sense that he, he had all this energy. They got a great response right off the bat, mm-hmm. so much that they got an encore on their first show. Which, I mean, not only is it their first show, but they're fucking opening band. Yes. Which, it's a huge deal to get an encore. <laughs> And since they already played all their songs, uh, they went back up and played one of their songs again. <laughs> <laughs> Jello said it was Man with the Dogs, but Klaus said they repeated Rawhide. 
Now, Rawhide was a great, because the Dead Kennedys are all very good at covers. Like, we'll cover Viva yeah. Las Vegas. We'll cover, uh, you know, their cover of I Fought the Law. Uh, but Rawhide is a really fun cover they used to do live. And actually, not too long ago, a tape was released. One of the Dead Kennedys rehearsal tapes from 1978, from the early days of the band. You know, they're like maybe five or six months in here. So we actually can hear what Rawhide sounded like at that first show, or at least a close approximation. It's fucking great. Yeah. Let's move about! legs yeah it definitely does and during that encore some guy went up to 6025 while he was playing grabbed his guitar cord wrapped it around him <laughs> so much as 6025 just looked around like what do i do it's his first show ever <laughs> yeah he's like is this something that we do I, I don't i'm not sure but all he could do was just keep on playing like that until the end of the song then klaus you know, had to go up to him, unplug the cord, and unwrap him like a <laughs> like a Christmas gift. <laughs> and during those early shows, like Jello started using his theater background to get more and more into character and sing the lyrics as kind of a story told by whatever evil character he's impersonating. Yeah, I mean, the first Dead Kennedys album especially is full of evil characters. You know, I kill children. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. That's a pre- that is a, a pretty, that is a, actually a, pre- in fact, let's listen to I Kill Children real fast. Like, sure. just to let you know, like, this is the type of character that Jello Biafra inhabited while not killing children. skin you alive. Jello Biafra would move across the stage back and forth like he would glide like I don't know how to describe like I don't know like a like a horny spider (laughs) it just glides back and forth constantly throughout the show it's such and it's it's so fucking theatrical and so creepy his instincts just feel so uh, right 
for something so wrong. I, I can't <laughs> word it exactly. Yeah. But you just got to see it. You got to see it on YouTube. Of course, of course. you got to see it. Yes. And he definitely took notes. Uh, he said when he saw the Screamers perform, obviously, a, a Tomato Duplani, or when he saw Darby Crash from the Germs perform. Like, that was the kind of thing that he spent time thinking about uh, how to present these songs, which is why just right off the gate on their first show, they really had it together. Yeah, and he had a full theatrical background, or at least a theatrical. He uh, he did high school theater. He had the coveted role of lead Nazi in The Sound of Music. That is yes. Yeah, and will majored in drama in college. Yeah, well, in the uh, fucking ten weeks that he went to college, (laughs) that's all he needed. That's all he needed. That's all he needed, man. We'll definitely and we'll definitely talk about uh, Jello channeling his uh, fucking inner Nazi later on this episode. And so, yeah, during their early shows, since Jello would run into the audience as he sang and it just just slam danced against people, the audience would grab onto him and try to tear off his clothes. Yeah, naturally. It be- well, it became like a dead Kennedy's thing. Like yes. that's what you do is you try to catch the slippery Jello. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so yes, Jello would usually lose a shirt. At, like at one early show though, when they were playing the gay community theater, Jello was getting pulled into the crowd again. And he was about to lose his pants, but thankfully, Insane Jane, who was a drummer in the scene back then, she held on to his pants by holding on to his belt loops, just holding on to him really tight, so he could, keep, you know, run back on stage and keep him on. He's just like, "Thank you." <laughs> but you know, sometimes he would lose his pants anyway. He lost his pants a lot, and okay. when we say like lost his pants, it's not just like he's performing in underwear; like it's like full dong. He's yes. hang- he is hanging dong, singing <laughs> California Uber Alice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that happened at one show. It, this was actually a year later when they were opening for The Clash. Uh, the Cramps were on that bill, too, actually. Yeah. It was Dead Kennedys and The Cramps, and I'm sure Lux is like, I have these vinyl pants. <laughs> you need some extra pants. But so, the, yes, the, the, the Dead Kennedys went on. Uh, Jello jumped into the crowd again, and once he managed to get back on stage, he was only wearing his boots and a belt. <laughs> so Jello did the rest of the show naked in front of three to four thousand people. That's fine. That's, That's great. great. No, he wasn't yeah. shy. He did. He just fucking go for it. Exactly, and everyone loved it. Uh, especially if you see pictures of it, like the rest of the band are kind of like just. At the, standing on the side, like laughing. Of course, because yeah. It's, it's funny. Like, it's like he lost it. Jesus fucking Christ! We're opening oh. for the Clash, and he's got no. He's dicks out. There's thousands of people. <laughs> <laughs> and right off to the side of the stage, uh, there was the uh, the venue promoter Bill Graham, who is notorious for being a huge asshole. Yeah. Being restrained <laughs> against his will because he wanted to get there and get that kid and just twist his head off or something. He wanted to fight him so bad. He's yeah. like, "You're ruining my show. This is my show. This is my town. These are my people." Yeah, Bill Graham was, uh, he controlled the live music scene in uh, on the West Coast yes. at that time. You know, when it wasn't, when you weren't talking about like venues, like small venues, like, you know, the Mabuhe and, you know, venues down in Los Angeles, like when it came to like the Fillmore, like Bill Graham was the guy you had to fucking go through. And that, and this is just, this is a through line with the Dead Kennedys again and again is saying fuck you to the music establishment and coming out of it fucking cherry clean. Yes. Now, one of the things that makes Dead Kennedys great is that despite the dated references, you know, there's plenty of dated references, especially on that first album, the music always sounds fresh. And the anger that they felt back then will always have a place in any modern society. Anger is very healthy. And part of the reason why that spark existed 
was because the environment in which the band was born was fraught with existential crises and tragedies that changed San Francisco forever and directly informed a huge number of Dead Kennedy songs. But the problem about talking about all this stuff is that it's recent history, which unfortunately sometimes feels like we're just talking politics, because America is still dealing with the problems of 40 years ago, mostly because the problems of today are born from the plans and schemes of the late 70s and early 80s. That is actually a lot of that is very true. It's not Marcus usually hating on the boomers, <laughs> which tends to be a thing. rolling it back. But <laughs> I'm trying to roll it back a little bit. We got some very hurt emails. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, it, it's not necessarily about laying blame, but it's about like pretty much exposing of why we're here now. Yes. This. Is, I mean, this is it is recent history. Yes, but it is history, and the history of San Francisco uh, absolutely shaped the Dead Kennedys and absolutely shaped the San Francisco scene. For example, just a few weeks before Ted Kennedy's played their first show, Californians voted in a proposition that cut property taxes, which gutted local funding and resulted in the closing of two dozen schools, the firing of a thousand teachers, and double mass transit fares. For what, though? For the wealthy! Oh, that's a, what a great <laughs> investment. Tax cuts for the wealthy. <laughs> that's exactly, that's all it was, tax cut. I mean, yeah, sure, some middle-class families probably benefited from a property tax cut, but it came at the expense of services for the middle class. Yeah, that's I was about to say. It, it's like that Homer Simpson thing where they were, like, changing, it, where he's in high school, and, and, and they're changing the speed limit, or they're actually adding a speed limit, and he's like, sure, it'll save some lives, but thousands will be late. <laughs> That's the exact same logic that they're putting in here. It's a shell game. You know, it's like, yeah, you pay less in taxes, but you pay more in everything else. And because the wealthy had less taxes to pay, they had more money to spend on new developments. So rents were raised to unreasonable levels in San Francisco in order to force evictions. And those evictions were carried out by teams of police officers in riot gear. California also had at this time the attempted rollback of gay rights in the form of Prop 6, which would have banned gay people and even allies from teaching in public schools statewide. But the cool thing is that the punks in San Francisco were right in the middle fighting against all of this. As we said, they were not a scene that made themselves political, but rather were a scene that was made political by their environment. When Prop 6 threatened their friends and neighbors, the punks at the Mabuhe led a benefit against Prop 6 called Nicks on 6, Save the Homos! <laughs> That's a great band. <laughs> and the whole thing was emceed by gay rights activist Harvey Milk, That's who you may cool. have heard before. Yes, yes, absolutely. Remember, there, there's that famous movie that you refuse to watch. <laughs> well, I'm just not a Sean Penn fan. Sean Penn is, yes, I understand he's an <laughs> asshole, but he's just, he's just one of those Oscar winners that doesn't mind that he's on the cover of an airline magazine. <laughs> it's just the most specific way to explain him. <laughs> but it explains him perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Harvey Milk. He, Sean Penn <laughs> really enjoys, I would say, Sean Penn really enjoys Tuscany and... Uh, Spring mostly. Uh, the fall, it gets a little bougie. So I usually try to avoid it then. You've read that article. <laughs> I see that. You know how many fucking flights I took last year? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Harvey Milk. 
Harvey Milk, he was a regular guy. This is something interesting that I, I read recently because I didn't know too much about him. He was just a regular guy, you know, from New York. He, he, he drifted around uh, with many different jobs, li- living all over the place. And then he went to live in San Francisco. He owned a camera shop and decided to get into politics at the age of 43. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, he, and I don't think he was out until his 40s. Yes. Like when he, yeah, when he moved to San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, w- he decided to go into politics because he was angry about what was happening to small business owners like himself and the discrimination against gay men like himself. Yeah. So after two unsuccessful campaigns, Harvey was elected to the Board of Supervisors, which made him the first openly gay elected official in the history of California. Yeah, very cool. And he fought for equal rights for gay people, of course, and the rights of small businesses instead of supporting large corporations, and that people should pick up their dog's poop in public places, <laughs> which I, I totally support that. Of course. No, I mean, that's the thing. At the end of the day, he's also a city supervisor. Yeah. He's, all, he's also yeah. like a municipal employee. I mean, just like budgets and things like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, he's very pragmatic. Very pragmatic, but also just very important. And he was right in the middle of this scene. Like, I mean, he wasn't like a punk or anything like that. Like, he didn't really know what was going on, but he appreciated the energy. And he yeah. was down for it, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, when he did the uh, the, the benefit, the Nixon 6 thing, uh, when he introduced the ready-mades, he called them the greatest thing since Pete Seeger. <laughs> oh. He's got a good sense of humor, but I don't know, man. Don't yeah, know. just fucking play. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> We're all in the same boat together. Who gives a shit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pete Seeger, come join us. <laughs> well, remember, this was San Francisco in 1978, which historians of the macabre will note was a fucking tragic year for San Francisco. Just weeks after Californians voted no on Prop 6, Johnstown happened. And a great number of the 917 people who died there in Guyana were from San Francisco. Because remember, San Francisco had been the home of People's Temple before they fucked off down to South America. And in fact, there was actually a punk venue next door to People's <laughs> Temple, which I think was also called the Temple. Or Beautiful Temple yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful Temple, something like that. <laughs> And it was in this dark and near hopeless environment, four days after the news from Jonestown hit the former hometown of People's Temple, that the dead Kennedys played a show. However, this show was not notorious for its proximity to the Jonestown Massacre, but was instead infamous because it occurred on the 15th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Coincidentally. Co- coincidentally. It really was coincidentally. That's what I think. At first. I, 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 that's what I believe. Yeah. Uh, they, they got booked to play on JFK's de- death day, November 22nd, 1978, at the Babuhai. And, of course, plenty of people were offended and put off by what many considered to be. Maybe maybe it's uh, just uh, offensive for offensive sake. Yeah, or, bad, bad taste. Yeah. You know, but when, you know, when East Bay Ray was asked, you know, isn't it uh, not, isn't it actually quite, quite not quite tasteful that to, not, to play a show on, you know, the, the the anniversary of Kennedy's death, and he said, "Of course, but the assassinations weren't too tasteful either." Oh, that must <laughs> that must have hurt a few agents who are watching. Oh. <laughs> you know, I know, you know who you I are. Know. <laughs> and then, of course, Herb Kane, the columnist from a San Francisco Chronicle, he said, "Just when you think the tastelessness has reached its nadir, <laughs> along comes a punk group called." The Dead Kennedys, <laughs> which will play at the Mabue Gardens on the 15th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. Oh, how be still my heart. Despite <laughs> mounting protests, the owner of Mabue says, I can't cancel them now. There's a contract. 
How will San Francisco ever recover? <laughs> well, the thing is, according to Jello, by the time that column came out, the band had actually gotten bumped from the bill because they needed a venue for Sun Ra, who was in the Bay Area doing shows around that time. Yeah, and of course you're gonna pick. Su- I mean, Sun Ra. I mean, at the dis- at this time, Dead Kennedys didn't ha- even have a fucking single. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, it's Sun Ra. Yeah, it's it's fucking Sun Ra, and this is you know what six months after Dead Kennedys first started playing shows, it's Sun. <laughs> Sun Ra is a he's a jazz legend, experimental yes. jazz legend. He's fucking great. Uh, so yeah, it was the right move to bump Dead Kennedys, put him on this fucking twenty third, and <laughs> yeah. have Sun Ra on the twenty second. Exactly. But when the article came out, everyone got all up in arms, and there was all this public outrage. Dirk put him right back on the bill. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? I'll just put you on with Sun Ra. <laughs> Why yeah. not? Te- Weirder things have happened. Yeah. Technically, that day. Technically, that night, Sun Ra opened for Dead Kennedys before <laughs> Dead Kennedys even had a fucking single because it was because he had said they have a contract. I can't cancel it. But that was bullshit. It was bullshit. Of, of course, it was, it was bullshit. bullshit. It was a fucking f- restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> no contracts. <laughs> so, yeah, the show went on, but they did definitely had a fire truck parked outside because of all the hate mail they received and the bomb threats mm. uh, called in from all over the country. So after Sun Ra played, Dead Kennedys finally went on stage. They played their songs with the Zapruder film playing on the screen behind them. Which was not their idea. No. It was not their no. idea at all. Because that's a bit much. And, yes. and it doesn't, it's not really within their character to be so on the nose. Right, exactly. And they were just not into that whole, there was just like, that's not even that funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has it to be actually, funny. Yeah, it, it does. That is the, and that's the great thing about Dead Kennedys is that it does have to be funny. Yeah. That is the whole thing is that it's got to be funny and playing the Zapruder film over and over again while they play a show, it's just not funny. Yeah. Yeah. And at that time, like the Zapruder film was pretty new because uh, it's not like JFK was assassinated and the Zapruder film was on Monday the fucking morning, news yeah. Monday morning. Like it took years upon years for the Zapruder film to finally uh, be released to the public. It was released, uh, I think, sometime in the 70s. So it was a it was a bit of a novelty. Uh, but but, you know, a little too on the nose. Yes. And, of course, Sun Ra's audience tried to run away as fast as they could. <laughs> they just got out of there quickly. But Sun Ra liked him, though. And you know why? Because he's so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the jazz guys liked punk. Like, Miles Davis was a big fan of the Stooges. It's because they shared cocaine together. <laughs> But yes, that is also true. Yeah, yeah, they they really they dug what they were doing. Like they the the jazz guys, they saw what the punk kids were doing and they got it and they appreciated it. Now, of course, in San Francisco, the Mabuhay was not the only place for bands like Dead Kennedys to play. The venue that was pretty much second in line was called the Deaf Club. And lucky for us, a recording of the Dead Kennedys was made there in March of 1979, back when the band was still a five-piece. <laughs>
definitely of the more angsty of yeah. the Dead Kennedy songs, but we'll get to the reason why Straight Ace was so fucking <laughs> angsty, as long as well as why other uh, songs in the Dead Kennedy's repertoire are seem to be a little like tonally different when it comes yeah. to lyrical content. We'll get to that here in a second, but first let's talk about the Death Death Club. Yeah, the Death Club was a small club that uh, actually had uh, the Death community hung out in. That hence the Death Club. Yeah, which was uh, pretty genius actually. Uh, Robert Hanneran he rented the space from the Death community and he started putting on punk shows in. December 1978 there and the thing is the death community were amused by these punk shows they loved them yes they would hang out these shows and dance to the vibrations some people said that maybe the death people in, enjoyed the punk subculture and like that they liked how they could somehow find a way to participate like putting their hands on the table to hear the music or they would hold up balloons to feel the vibrations while the germs played that's really fucking cool I mean yeah. I mean yeah my uh my cousin uh dated a guy that was deaf uh, when I was a kid and he used to talk about how he would choose what music to listen like he had a like a fucking bitchin like bass system in his car and he would choose which songs to listen to based on what vibrations like what vibrational patterns were most pleasant to him and that's how he listened to music that's cool it's a, yeah it's really fucking cool but and it's great that yeah people in the deaf club were doing the same fucking thing absolutely so Robert Hanneran he managed the Dead Kennedys for a little while around this time so he booked the Dead Kennedys along with several other bands like The Offs The Mutants Tuxedo Moon and, and a few more all to record a live compilation album called Can You Hear Me uh, you, I get it yeah. yeah, we, we get it we get it <laughs> where uh, three Dead Kennedys songs were on and then later Dead Kennedys released their entire set live at the Deaf Club in 2004 which you could hear pretty much anywhere. Yeah, it's, is, on, it's, it's great. It's on Spotify and it's really fucking cool. Like you can hear like early versions of some like uh, when you get drafted back then was called Back in Rhodesia. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. yeah. And there's like some of the songs are, you know, they have a bit of a different flavor to them. So, it's, yeah. but they're still it's, fucking solid. And you can see why people in San Francisco, like why the punks were immediately saying, this is our fucking band. Like this band is fantastic. This is the one that we're going to fucking follow. Unfortunately, though, the show the Dead Kennedys played on March 3rd was 6025's last. See, 6025 was a big prog guy, and he kept insisting that the band indulge in long, complex instrumental pieces. And that was sort of anathema to, or anathema. Anathema or anathema? Anathema, probably. My aunt has <laughs> a friend named Anathema. <laughs> So, yeah, go with whichever one. It was the opposite of what a lot of the punks were going for, because in a lot of ways, you know, punk was a reaction to Prague. It was a reaction to Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes. And a lot of these bands that had these very long masturbatory solos, which I personally enjoy, but I can see how you don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and 6025 was a guy that was really into that shit. And he used to try to bring these songs to Dead Kennedy's rehearsals to try to get him to play it. Like one of them was called Dance of the Laughing Death Angel. And everyone in the band fucking hated it. And he kept fucking singing, we gotta play this song. And being in a band before, like, I know what it's like. Sometimes you have one member of the band who will try to get the band to play a song for a fucking year or more. They just keep bringing it over and over. It's just like, the song doesn't work. We gotta move on. We, we gotta try to write other songs. <laughs> and really, it was the argument over this song that led to 6025 leaving because he thought Dead Kennedys was too mainstream. And he died on this hill before because this was the exact song that had also caused the dissolution of his previous band, The Mailmen. 
Well, he'll find the right band for him one day. <laughs> but that's not to say that 6025 couldn't write gr- great fucking songs, even if they were a little angsty. And that's why some of the early Dead Kennedy songs have that specific angsty feel because 6025 was the one who wrote them. He wrote Straight A's that we just talked about. And he wrote the manically nihilistic Forward to Death. forward to death (laughs) yeah well you know the world is bringing him down (laughs) it's making him really sore i can tell (laughs) but this song was actually so depressing that dirk dirksen called 6025 into his office at the mabuhe and asked him about it asked hey man you okay and 6025 said like oh yeah i'm just you know i'm just usually so depressed that i like look forward to death and dirk dirksen said Okay, that's pretty clear cut. You can go now. (laughs) That is the only right answer when someone asks if you wrote that song. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's also interesting about 6025, though, is that before joining Dead Kennedys, he'd been highly Christian. While he was in the band, though, he tossed all that aside and wrote one of the band's most anti-religious, if, again, somewhat juvenile songs. There's not a whole lot of nuance to religious vomit. Well, I, I like the music. The music's really interesting. The music's great, and that's what 6025 was best at. I 
Yeah, all religions suck. All religion makes me vomit. Blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, remember they're like all nineteen. Well, yeah. at least at least Jello and six zero two five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're nineteen. Yeah, it's the type of song a nineteen year old kid's gonna write. You know, yeah. and it just so happens like, oh, this is a uh, groundbreaking musically, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, lyrically, it's it's yeah, nineteen year old kids. It doesn't have the same uh, je ne sais quoi as like say like Chemical Warfare. Yes. After leaving the dead Kennedys, though, 6025 returned to Christianity to become what he called the Captain Beefheart of gospel music. Did he really? Is he really quoted saying that? Jello Biafra said that's what he told him. When Uh 6025 left dead Kennedys, he said, I'm going to go be the Captain Beefheart of gospel music. I'll see you later. And then he put on his ascot and just just rode into the sunset. (laughs) And that sounds fucking great. I'd love to hear the Captain Beefheart of gospel music. But instead, 6025 decided to work on a Christian punk rock opera, which he's apparently still working on, which isn't quite as exciting. But hey, go on, man. Work on whatever the fuck you want to work on. Yeah. But really, a second guitarist wasn't needed in Dead Kennedys. So after 6025 left... The band just pushed on as a four-piece and went into the studio to record their first single. This song was aimed mostly at the governor of California, whom Jello Biafra saw as a hippie fascist. But the lyrics were also pointed towards the baby boomers who were just fine with fascism taking over. I'm not going to make a fucking joke here. I'm not gonna make a. I'm not going to make a comment. And, <laughs> and therein lies the joke. <laughs> Perfectly crafted artist. (laughs) And this song is still one of the dead Kennedys most well-known. California Uber Alice. Man, I've been trying since I was fucking 17 to pull out that, oh, like I can't do it. You got to get that Catherine Hepburn warble. 
Like, we've been doing this for a week. <laughs> we really have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. California Uber Alice. It's, yeah. a, it's a reference to the first line of uh, Germany's national anthem, Deutschland Uber Alice. Well, what used to be Germany's oh, right. national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> Let me write that down. They omitted that um, starting in 1945 for obvious reasons. Obvious reasons. They are yes. not Nazis. No. Anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, Jello sings in character as California Governor Jerry Brown, who was who was the governor at that time from 1975 to 1983. Now, there's a little bit of history to this song that dates all the way back the previous year to oh. 1978. All the way back to 1978. Exactly. In Boulder, Go- Boulder, Colorado. Well, that's the thing about this. The Dead Kennedy story is that like all of this shit, it's happened so fast. Yeah. From Jello moving from Boulder to San Francisco and to Fresh Fruit, like it's like a year and a half. Yes. You know? <laughs> it, yeah. it, it happens is, pretty quickly. It happens so quickly. That's true. We're going week by week here. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> yes. like, a lot happened. I know. The last episode was like six months. <laughs> so, yes, before the Dead Kennedys, Jello played music with his childhood friends in a band called The Healers. So, one night in February, the Healers recorded a song that they made up together with another band called The Dancing Assholes. Oh, it's a wonderful little it's punk wonderful. name. Yeah, 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 it's great. <laughs> <laughs> the music was totally improvised, and the lyrics were written by John Greenway, who, who was uh, part of The Healers. He was a Jello's friend. And he actually wrote that the whole song in less than a half hour, yeah. which is very, very similar to the actual lyrics that came out later with The, with the Dead Kennedys. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there was a yeah, a guy in Boulder actually wrote California Uber Alice. Yes, that's yeah. true. I mean, it's very... It's a, a guy who didn't even live in California. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's very true. It, a lot of the lyrics are super similar, except for like, you know, soon I will be president, everyone will use Pepsodent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they changed that around a, a little bit afterwards. No, I mean, Jello definitely crafted the song afterwards. But man, I mean, why were they writing about... Cali- I mean, was did Jello just come back that insufferable time? Like, well, let me tell you about Jerry Brown. Yeah. Yes, because he was going back and forth around that time. Guess I'll write a fucking song about it then. <laughs> Maybe that'll get him to shut the fuck up about it. And Jello's like, nice try. <laughs> so now we go back to 1979. Jello, now in the Dead Kennedys, he came up with the new music while playing around with his roommate's bass, and he changed the lyrics around, of course. He called it more influenced by Japanese kabuki music than rock. I, I could see Maybe. that. I mean, the the song is uh, it doesn't sound like anything. That's like true. not like California Uber out. Like it does. There is no song uh, that came before that sounds like California Uber Alice. It is a wholly original work, and that's what part of what makes it such a huge fucking achievement. That is true. Yes. So they recorded the single and they released it in Ju- in June of 1979 with a B side of "Man with the Dog." Yeah, Man with the Dogs was another like Boulder creation. Or yes. it sprung from uh, Jello's head in Boulder. Yeah, that was a fun one where he just saw a guy with his dogs walking his dogs, but the but the guy enjoyed staring at people to make them uncomfortable. So it was a way of kind of breaking down these social contracts that we have that were, where we shouldn't stare at strangers for long periods of time. But the guy just relished in in, in making people uncomfortable. And Jello's like, I gotta write write a song about this. This is exactly what I like. <laughs> Let's listen to it. Let's go. 
I said, let's do something, what? Why you walking? The dog turn around the toes. You turn around two ways, break it down. Now who does the guy think he's doing that? Stop it, it might go big. I laughed at your armor, he goes nude. And I do, when I do, that cup doesn't get into you. with the dogs I, I, I love that little <laughs> I love that phrasing well back to California Uber Alice now today the reference to Jerry Brown as a hippie fascist dictator is somewhat confusing mm. personally when I heard that Jerry Brown was running for governor again in 2010 my first thought was here we go again <laughs> and, oh no fascism has returned to California <laughs> ladies and gentlemen I did, did Jello Biafra not take care of this <laughs> no. many years past I didn't know who the fuck Jerry Brown was. Like, I didn't actually, like, I mean, I don't know every single detail about every fucking governor that this nation has ever had. I didn't know that Jerry Brown's just another fucking politician. Yeah. He's a Democrat. Like, he's, he's just, he's, he's just, just like a, all the rest of them. Exactly. But thanks to Jello, generations of music fans like myself saw Jerry Brown as an unholy monster. Coming to take us away to the organic gas chambers for the sin of not mellowing out. I thought that about Jerry Brown for decades. (laughs) (laughs) Until Google. Yeah, until Google. I didn't have Google in fucking 1998 when I first heard Fresh Fruit. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It was more just like, I'm disappointed in you. (laughs) That was really what it was instead of that he's this fascist dictator. It's more like, oh, you're you're a disappointing, uh, somewhat liberal uh, politician. It's it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Never changes. (laughs) And since Jerry Brown was an ostensibly liberal California politician, and since Jello Biafra was naturally involved in politics for years after the dead Kennedys, it wasn't long before the two of them actually met. Although it's not quite like the battle royale you expect it to be. Like it's not Jello Biafra like Jerry Brown. At last we meet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that Jello was much more sheepish than that. Well, I mean, they were both working at Earth First, which was like an environmental advocacy advocacy group. And so, like, they were at a dinner that Jerry Brown was hosting himself, and Jello was sitting there, probably staring at the forks or something <laughs> and and jerry's one of jerry's associates said hey jerry this is jello jello look this is jerry <laughs> i told you about this jello guy i told him about you <laughs> and i actually i played jerry i i played jerry your song this morning and jello the whole time was like fuck <laughs> i mean it wasn't like he was like a shame. Well, he did. He said he turned into all shades of red. Yeah, yeah. He was. He it's was awkward. kind of embarrassed. It's just awkward, you know. It's like, oh man, okay, fuck. I <laughs> yeah, I wrote the song. All right. It's because he he was proud of the song that he wrote, but he also said like, well, it turns out I was actually kind of wrong. Yeah, he did admit. That, he did admit that he was totally wrong about what went on with Jerry Brown. Of course, we wouldn't won't know because Jerry Brown never became president. Who knows? <laughs> Things may have turned out very differently for this country. Uh, but uh, he did update it later on. You know. Oh like yeah, he, we got a bigger pr- problem now. We got a bigger problem now. Yeah, because he saw like Ronald Reagan was. You know, he he became. You know, Ronald Reagan was to. You know. American punks, what Margaret Thatcher was to British punks and British comic book writers in the 80s and 90s. Now, this song was actually recorded twice, once for the single and once for the debut album. But while the album version rocks harder, I mean, it does, I mean, it does, it's more of a rock song. You know, it's got more rock production. I think the single version is much more artistic and theatrical and therefore more terrifying. 
Like, he does actually play the character of a terrifying Nazi exceedingly well. Yeah. It's chilling. And the instruments also work really good. Yeah. Like, it's, they're also good in this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The musicians behind them, too, Klaus and Nismay Ray. But, I mean, the, the whole thing is, I, I think, I honestly, I, the, the single version is better. Yeah, I mean, the, the instruments, it sets the scene. You know, they are set dressing for this Nazi fascist character that Jello Biafra is playing. And specifically, what makes it is the breakdown, which really highlights Jello's Nazi voice on the chorus afterwards, and it outlines how Governor Brown's fascist state government becomes a familiar national nightmare. I played him your song! <laughs> <laughs> can't tell you how many thousands of times I've listened to that song and it still fucking did still sends a chill down my spine when the chorus comes in. So once the band had the single for California Uberalis recorded, the only thing to do was to find a label to release the damn thing. When no real interest materialized, the Dead Kennedys did what a lot of bands of the time did and they released it themselves. But unlike Plan 9 or Vengeance that existed almost solely to release the music of one band, you know, like the Misfits and the Cramps respectively, the label the Dead Kennedys created ended up being one of the most interesting indie labels of all time. That label was Alternative Tentacles. Yes, Alternative Tentacles. They had to do that because there were no major labels that wanted them. No. No, none. I mean, they're just like, will you change your, your name? No. Okay, <laughs> so forget it. And also, yeah. the major labels had already given up on punk. Punk was over by then. Yeah, because the- It came and left. Yeah, it definitely came and left because, you know, the Ramones had failed. Uh, they had had- by Yeah, can you believe that? They are like, the Ramones failed. <laughs> I mean, from the perspective of a, a record sales executive, yeah, the the Ramones just ha it hadn't hit. You know, it just hadn't stuck. The Ramones, at the, at, by 1978, there were at least three, if not four albums in uh, by then, and it just hadn't fucking worked out. You know, it hadn't translated to sales. You know, live audiences still hated the Ramones, you know, <laughs> when they weren't expecting to see the Ramones. Uh, Talking Heads hadn't really hit big yet. 
Uh, yeah, even it was though, just too niche, I, yeah. I think. And, and it wasn't enough uh, dollar signs for, for <laughs> these people to, to, to give them even a little bit of money to, to promote their record. Well, it was also the Sex Pistols. You know, the Sex Pistols that kind of ruined it for oh, everybody. Oh, they crashed and burned. Yeah, they, cra- they? Yeah, they, cra- they crashed and burned. Everyone thought that, you know, the that punk musicians were just unreliable, which they kind of were. We talked about this in the damn series a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about but, this in the entire series of this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the Dead Kennedys were different from everybody. They had their shit together at all times. They always showed up on time. They, when they said they were going to do something, they fucking did it. They were the complete opposite of what you would expect a punk band to be, especially a San Francisco punk band. And that's also kind of why Dead Kennedys prevailed when no one else in that scene really did. Well, that is true. They they definitely uh, organized mm-hmm. really well. Yeah. That's a funny thing to say about people who are so against fascism. <laughs> um, and they had to be DIY. Like half of the money uh, of the single that made, you know, when they created alternative tentacles came from the gigs they played, just like the Misfits. All the money goes back into the band. Mm-hmm. And the other half of that money came from Ray, who co-owned alternative tentacles with Jello at that time. So Ray worked on the distribution, which meant really driving around with friends, asking stores or begging stores to sell their (laughs) singles, as well as selling the singles in the trunk of their cars. And this is like the montage part of the story. While they're like trying to get more awareness (laughs) and trying to hand over the singles to people and everything. It's like, please listen to this. And Alternative Tentacles, like at for about the first four years that uh, it existed, was just to release Dead Kennedy sing- singles. But in 1982, they released the compilation Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, of course, a play on Let Them Eat Cake. And they chose Jelly Beans and put Ronald Reagan on the cover because Ronald Reagan famously loves jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that about Ronald Reagan? I heard something about I that. Think I think I wasn't told here you that. for that. I mean, in America. I was also not here for that in 1982. I wasn't oh, born right. yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's I was true. still a, year, a fucking year away from being born. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're going to talk about alternative tentacles a lot more uh, in episode four. But at this point in time, like, it's just there to release Dead Kennedy singles. So with the single being distributed in California... Dead Kennedys wasted no time in booking a tour out east before California Uberalis was available on that coast. And they began a week-long tour of the major northeastern cities. Yes. I with mean, nobody knowing who the fuck they were. I know. I mean, <laughs> they figured, let's just do this. Let's go to New York. Uh, they got an offer. Yes, exactly. The, the promoter said, like, go to New York and, and, and come play over here so you, you could take over both coasts. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's do that. So they took whatever little money they had left and booked their flights and hotels to New York City. And at the airport, going through security, Jello couldn't help but draw a crowd as he had to keep emptying his pockets full of chains and rings and studded belts <laughs> and all oh, these boots and a dog collar has also because he kept beeping, going yeah. back and forth with the metal detectors. Well, that was another fun thing about the Dead Kennedys that like Jello Biafra definitely looked the part yes. of the capital P punk. He had his own style, but the rest of the guys, especially like East Bay Ray, they were more of the Mission of Burma type of school where they just looked like regular fucking guys. Yeah, they <laughs> call them like they're like it's like kind of like a, a Buddy Holly's backing band, like the crickets. <laughs> the crickets, yeah, they, they look said, like the crickets. <laughs> a lot of people said they look like like you know that De- Jello Biafra would like slither on stage, and then the crickets would show up. Just a guy <laughs> with glasses, and he would pick it up and play some of the most sickest fucking guitar parts of the era, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah, it's fucking great. I love that. 
So when they made it to New York, they played hurrahs first, and they did pretty well, which is not as bad as Max's, where people just sat there and stared and smoked their cigarettes. Well, even though, you know, suicide was definitely a part of the Max's crowd, like, in 1978, the Max's scene was not dead Kennedys. No. You know, like, they absolutely were not. Like, they they had kind of moved on from all that. Like, I think... The, very clicky at that time. Very clicky. The band that the dead Kennedys opened for was called Voodoo Shoes, who have completely disappeared from history. I can't find anything about Voodoo Shoes. <laughs> All I know is I think uh, it's, it's some one lady uh, is the sister of one of the guys from the Talking Heads. <laughs> It's it's a thing. It's a whole thing. It's always a thing. Yes. Yeah. So but they did well. They did well at Haraz, though. Yeah, they did well. I mean, Jello raced through the crowd. He slammed into a few people. I mean, there was like maybe thirty people up there, and about twenty of them were dancing. Yeah. So it, I mean, it was a pretty good turnout. And he actually, when he was going through the crowd, he's after he slammed into all these people, he got back on stage wrestling this girl named Donna Death. Ah, Donna Death. Which is a great name. <laughs> And they wrestled on stage, and this is the you can see this on YouTube. This is like one of a, a, a newer kind of video that I found on YouTube on, on the Dead Kennedys Live. The, him and Donna Death are like wrestling almost in slow motion because there's like cords and wires everywhere, you know, hooked up to the instruments. So they're fighting for whoever gets on top while he's singing. It, it really looks like like the way their their awkwardness uh, is on, on them wrestling. It looks so much like a, a deeply religious couple on their wedding night. <laughs> I don't know, just move your leg. And then I'll know. put my leg here. <laughs> and I'll push off, okay? Uh, that's what we'll do. <laughs> and then, so finally, Jello gets back up, he grabs the mic, and he starts singing that part like, pull, pop. And then. Donna Death runs up to him and grabs him by the chest and pulls him down. <laughs> so he's, pull pot. he's still singing pull pot <laughs> while she's wrangling to get him pinned down because she had too much fun. She's like, it's not over yet. <laughs> Jello keeps singing and he tries to get away and he finishes the song. The song ends. Pull pot. <laughs> exactly. He's at the edge of the stage, almost hiding from her. And afterwards, he's just like, Whew, wow, that was that was actually a pretty good show. <laughs> And then they played the Hot Club in Philadelphia, which was also fun. But it wasn't until they got to Boston. Yeah. And they played at the Rat. The Rat Skeller, as the locals call it. It was affectionately called the Rat by the locals. Yes. But yeah, it's called the Rat Skeller. Well, at the Rat, getting to the venue, it, it was a bit of a confrontation. Because as, as soon as they got there, the bouncer refused to let the band in. Massive. Because it, it's Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> dead Kennedys are going to play at this venue. Yeah, I'm not going to allow that. I'm no, I'm no, no, no. It. Well, Boston's, they're not, I mean, at this point, it's like, ah, uh, you know, they're more used to modern lovers. <laughs> dead Kennedys is bad taste. Like, they're more used to Jonathan Richmond at this point. Yes. There's, and there's, uh, Mission of Burma is around there in 1978. They're, they're still, they're in the scene, but yeah, Dead Kennedys is pretty fucking intense. Yes, but luckily, you know, they, they managed to talk themselves in into the the venue that they were supposed to play in and yeah. do their sound check and then they performed two sets and uh the first one like jello tried to get the audience riled up but everyone just sat there and just stared at the show again yeah which for a performer like jello the worst thing you can have is indifference right exactly so on the second set jello grabbed a pitcher of beer and poured it on the people in the front row because it's like, thank you for coming or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and that made the audience move away from the stage to the walls. At least they didn't leave. At least. 
And so, just to make it more fun, the waitress poured a pitcher of beer on Jello. Like, here, you're welcome. I know you wanted some <laughs> chaos. Here you go. Here's your chaos. But that was all fun. That's what made it exciting. Like, I, Jello did say, like, furniture flew, glasses uh, flew. Like, there was beer everywhere. Like, this is what I wanted. I wanted a reaction. Yeah, yeah. He got what he, he absolutely got. What he wanted. Yes, they did finally have fun at that show. But they considered the entire tour a total bust, uh, incredibly unsuccessful, since they didn't make a profit because of the cost of flights and the shitty hotels plus jello hated how the, these rock venues in the northeast was 21 and over yeah and he he didn't understand he's like we're all 19 and 20 like these are the kids that we want to play for why are you having all these older people with with jobs and they're so boring that <laughs> come see us of course you're not going to get all riled up and be so excited about some new music like this well that was the cool thing about the mabuhe is that some people uh credit the mabuhe for being the uh, creator of the all ages show you know, which ended up, which is such a huge part of the punk scene. You know, yeah. it would be a huge, and still is to this day. Anytime you have a punk show, anytime you have a fucking house show, it's going to be all ages. Um, but, you know, in the West Coast in New York, like, unless you had someone who was very clever that could talk their way in, like, there weren't going to be kids at Max's Kansas City because it was a fucking bar. You yeah. know, there weren't going to be kids at CBGB's because it was a fucking bar. Uh, but out in San Francisco, it was a much, much different scene. And speaking of San Francisco, things were starting to heat up for the punk scene when it came to dealing with the cops. Much of this was the work of the mayor, the much-hated Diane Feinstein, who, by the way, also almost tanked the Richard Ramirez serial killer investigation by announcing in a press conference that the cops were tracking the killer through his shoe prints. <laughs> This Wait, was I not supposed to say that? <laughs> I was. I'm helping. I'm, I'm helping. Well, that was the whole thing when they were trying to catch the Night Stalker. Richard Ramirez didn't know how the cops knew that it was specifically him at each of the crimes. Richard Ramirez had a very distinct shoe, an avia, uh, and so they found the shoe print at every single uh, scene in which Richard Ramirez committed a murder in Los Angeles. And then when Richard Ramirez went up to San Francisco and committed a murder up there, you know, someone asked like. Hey, how do you know this is the Night Stalker? And Diane Feinstein goes like, "Oh, the shoe print. There's a shoe. There's this shoe print thing. It's so fascinating. It's so much fun. There's a shoe print thing that they they are actually they see it's the same shoe print up here, so they know that it's a Night Stalker. And the cops are just in the background going, "Jesus fucking Christ, would you shut the fuck up?" And as soon as she announced that, Richard Ramirez walked over to the Golden Gate Bridge and threw his shoes in the fucking water. I guess you could say she helped <laughs> Richard Ramirez. She helped Richard Congrats. Ramirez. <laughs> now, Diane Feinstein had come to power in 1978 on the heels of another San Francisco tragedy. Just weeks after the Jonestown Massacre, both Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone were murdered by a former city supervisor named Dan White. Yeah, Dan White, he uh, he, he was working, uh, you know, for the board of supervisors like Harvey Milk was. Uh, then he quit his job, and then he tried to take it back a week later, but Mayor Moscone said no because it had already been decided to name a new supervisor. Yeah. And on November 27, 1978, the day that Mayor Moscone was to name the new su city supervisor, Dan White climbed through the basement window in City Hall with a gun in his hand. He walked up to the mayor's office and shot Mayor Moscone four times, twice in the head. Mm -hmm. Then he reloaded his his revolver and cornered Harvey Milk and shot 
Harvey five times, twice in the head. Yeah, and this was a big fucking deal in San Francisco because, you know, Harvey Milk was a uh, much-loved local figure. Mayor Moscone was pretty popular, uh, and Dan White. And it increased tensions in the city because the police of San Francisco supported Dan White. They would wear shirts underneath their uniforms that said, Free Dan White. Yes. And gave him uh, special privileges after he had turned himself in and, uh, you know, stayed at the jail. And so it was one of those very, I can't believe that this is a thing that you could be for or against <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> It's a, a pre- double murder. Premeditated. Yeah, a premeditated double murder, and still the cops were behind Dan White and those yeah a good number of them a good number of them yeah and those tensions would bubble over about a year later but we'll talk about that when we talk about fresh fruit for rotting vegetables now as opposed to Moscone whose daughter used to go to shows at the Mabuhe all the time Diane Feinstein was a law and order mayor who was married to a real estate developer more concerned with her husband's bottom line than the citizens and the soul of her city and she was unapologetically in bed with real estate. Literally. Literally. <laughs> she married her real estate developer husband in City Hall. I know. And not even like the cool one where you sign up and you wait in line to get married. <laughs> it was like a whole banquet and everything. It was a banquet. While people it, were being thrown on the streets. Yes. While people were being thrown on the streets at the behest of her husband, she was having a gigantic, fancy, expensive banquet in City Hall. It was a fuck you to all of the regular people of San Francisco. Now, according to author Michael Foley, the biggest struggle in San Francisco at the time was between the renting class and the landlords of San Francisco. And Diane Feinstein, as I said, was literally <laughs> in bed with the latter. Even before Feinstein was in power, real estate developers were using cops in riot gear to empty out buildings full of elderly residents with some assaults taking place just two blocks away from the Mabuhay, so the punks were well aware of what was going on here. But once Feinstein was in office, things only got worse, and ordinary people all over the city were having their rents raised to unreasonable levels. Nobody could fucking afford to, The working class could not afford to live in San Francisco anymore, and that was by design. At this time, landlords were potential threats to one's existence in San Francisco, which gives the Dead Kennedy song, Let's Lynch the Landlord, a more understandable perspective. The landlord's here to visit. They're blasting disco down below. Says I'm doubling the rent because I'm building some damn. You're gonna help the boss in it all. Oh, it can. You know we can. Turn on the heat Tell me are you ever 
those dirty fucking landlord tricks like turning off the heat, turning off the hot water, you know, refusing to make any sort of repairs that are necessary in order to live in an apartment. And they would do that to force evictions. Things also got worse for the scene with Diane Feinstein because about a week after she took office, raids on punk venues and general harassment towards the scene became a constant issue. Now, the Mabuhe stayed open mostly because Dirk Dirksen instituted a strict over 18 after 11 p.m. rule. Still all ages before 11 p.m., but right. after that, at the very least, 18 and up. Yeah, it was a restaurant. It was Yeah, it was a restaurant. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, you, you know, you got to eat. Well, there was no fucking law that he had to institute this rule. There was no reason for him to institute this rule, but he did it and to try to get the cops off his fucking back. But cops still raided the club, and they would always use the stupid, dumb shit arcane permit infraction you know it's the same kind of one where we have here in new york city where it's like you gotta have a dance permit <laughs> you know it's something that came about in the fucking 1800 in the 19th century and uh yeah you gotta have a dance permit if you're gonna have dances otherwise we're gonna shut you down it's just a way for a city to control the venues in the city they're fucking ruling the deaf club was dealing with the same shit once cops figured out it was a punk venue, the raids were constant, with shows often getting shut down halfway through. And other venues, like Loma Linda, lasted less than a year because of continued harassment. That was the same way with the Deaf Club. It lasted until 1980 because they kept getting a lot of uh, noise violations, which is like one of the fun headlines was Deaf Club closes because of too much noise. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too loud. He headless, <laughs> headless body found in topless bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Feinstein was also shutting down shows before they even started. Like, she shut down one, of, like, there was, the Avengers had a show, uh, and they had used, like, I would say some questionable imagery on a flyer. It was a little dirty. It wasn't bad, but it was, you know, a little dirty. And so Feinstein ordered the cops to put a fucking padlock on the door of the venue on the night of the show. So she's fucking with them quite a bit. In other words, as it's been said many times before, let's lynch the landlord could have just as easily been called let's lynch the mayor. Ooh. <laughs> so to push back, Jello Biafra put his money where his very large mouth was <laughs> and ran for mayor of San Francisco in 1980. Yeah. He fucking did yeah, it. He did At it. At 21 years old, yes. ran for mayor. He got these the idea when he and Ted were driving up to a Pierre Ubu concert and Ted said, hey, Jello, because I'm sure Ted probably shut Jello up halfway through a <sighs> diatribe of some sort of word salad about what's wrong with the, with, with, with the, with the, with the politics system in San Francisco. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, Jello, you got such a big mouth on you. Why don't you run for president? Or actually, why don't you run for mayor? <laughs> the mayor, the mayor election is coming up right, actually, right now. Just mm. do it. <laughs> well, maybe I will. I know. <laughs> Ted's like, what have I done? <laughs> and that's the thing. By the time they got to the Pier Ubu show, they told everyone there. And they all said, that's great. But what, what's your campaign platform? What are you going to run on? And so Jell was like, I got to get to work now as <laughs> yeah. mayor. I, I got to get to work. Someone give me a pen, give me a napkin. And so he got there and he just started writing his platform on a napkin while Pierre Ubu played about five feet away. Yeah. So the next day, Jello goes to the city hall and says, the most important thing you got to say, I want to run for mayor. What should I do? 
<laughs> How is Mayor Dunn running for? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> step one. Well, step one was uh, first thing you had to do was get 5,000 signatures from registered voters to get on the ballot. That's hard. So, yes. Yeah, so Jello the ba- and the band, Dead Kennedys, and all their friends in the scene got to work and also had to get a lot of people become uh, registered voters because they're all turning of age at this point. Mm-hmm. And after a lot of hard work, they got... 500 signatures. Well, there weren't a whole lot. I mean, that was about the size of the scene yes. in San Francisco at that time. There's about 500 punks. It's it's amazing because, you know, in in the scene, a lot of people either really love Jello or other people probably found him very obnoxious. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing that he got 500 signatures yeah, was, alone. Yeah, there was not a consensus on Jello is great. <laughs> no. Let's listen to Jello talk more. Like, that was not necessarily a consensus, but still 500 people they got, you know, they were able to get signatures from. But to get more, there's a, this loophole where you could pretty much buy your way on the ticket. It's not pretty much. It is you, you can buy your way. buy your way on you the ticket. You can 100% buy your way on the ticket, yeah. Which is ridiculous. Uh, you, you you could pay 25 cents per signature that you're missing. So that would be about a thousand over $1,000, which Jello Biafra obviously did not have. No, none of them had. So Dirk Dirksen said, you know what? We'll throw you a benefit, a spaghetti banquet, <laughs> and raise the money. Because, man, if there's one thing punks love, it's spaghetti. That is true. That, wasn't that the last meal Sid Vicious had? <laughs> I think it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They oh, love gosh. spaghetti because spaghetti's fucking cheap. You can make a bunch of it, and you can eat to your heart's content. I get it. I used to fucking make big tubs of spaghetti and eat them for a week all the fucking time. Me too. Every time I go to the mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> so they they hosted the the Biafra for Mayor benefit on September third, nineteen seventy nine, at the Mabue Gardens to to make up the difference and to get him on the ticket, which they did. They absolutely did. And when it came to Jello's campaign, he used what he called his quote peculiar talent for annoying people <laughs> to come up with great slogans. You had Apocalypse Now, vote for Biafra. Jello, because conformity means death. And the vaguely threatening, what if he wins? <laughs> or my favorite, vote for Jello. My record speaks for itself. <laughs> my favorite was uh, carried by Kathy Chichi Pinnock, the Dead Kennedys manager. Hers said, if he doesn't win, I'll kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. But he had a platform. I mean, there were, of course, jokes throughout, but hell, some of the ideas were pretty fucking good. Yeah. I mean, one of his ideas was legalized squatting for the less fortunate in buildings that had been left empty just for the tax write-offs. Yeah, which should be fucking instituted here in New York City as well. I, I absolutely agree. There are all these empty buildings. And for what? Put people in them. Yes, exactly. No or- more tax shelters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of empty blocks in my fucking city. <laughs> Run for mayor. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or also to erect statues of Dan White all over town and have the Parks Department sell eggs, rocks, and tomatoes so people could throw them at the statues. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, perfect. Or, or, or to make up the city deficit by hiring laid-off city workers as panhandlers at a 50% commission. So they would go around begging for money, in, especially in certain rich neighborhoods like Pacific Heights, where Diane Feinstein lived. <laughs> of course. No, he stuck it to Diane Feinstein a lot. Like when Diane Feinstein did uh, the, that fucking stupid 
stupid candidate thing where they go and like they bring a broom and they're like, we're going to clean this town up. Oh, uh, she actually did that like down on Market Street. She brought the broom like we're going to sweep away crime. We're going to clean up San Francisco. So uh, Jello Biafra put on a janitor's uniform, got a vacuum cleaner and went and vacuumed <laughs> Diane Feinstein's house. I like, saw that. <laughs> it's cute. It's a very it's a very cute campaign. Yeah. yeah, it's like one of them. He uh, proposed uh, making all businessmen wear clown suits yes. from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Right, exactly. Just wh- Why don't we just put this out all in the open? Yeah, yeah. He would auction off the highest uh, city uh, offices to the highest bidder, uh, you know, like set a, br- a board of bribery for like liquor licenses and uh, police protection and all that shit. Yeah, we, if you guys are going to do this, we might as well still like make these standard rates if you guys are just going to be doing this behind closed doors anyway we yeah. might as well just make this part of the job yeah let's make it part of the job and raise some money for the fucking city but perhaps his most interesting idea i actually like this one make cops run for re-election every four years and the neighborhood gives a vote of yes or no you know as far as a vote of confidence goes and if it's no new cops <laughs> <laughs> four years to turn around i don't know how practical that is but hey it's a fucking fun idea i like it it's a, it is a fun idea. Yeah, and actually, Jello did have some support in the law enforcement community. Uh, San Francisco sheriff, his name was Mike Hennessy. He was actually a huge punk rock guy. Loved yeah. going to punk rock shows. Uh, That's true. He said that he would like put on his jeans and a t-shirt. And he'd go to the shows, and everyone's like, "This guy's a cop." <laughs> He's like, I just like the music, okay? <laughs> yeah, he fully endorsed Jello, and you know, and Mike Hennessy. He was San Francisco's longest running sheriff. But yeah, he was like, yeah. Give him a chance. What if he wins? Actually, he was a very cool guy. He, he, he had a very good legacy he left behind. Yeah. What was really cool about all this, though, is that Jello was not ignored. Although that mo- more had to do with the fairness doctrine that was still in, time, in use back then. Oh, right. Whenever uh, one candidate goes on air or, or a debate to uh, talk about their platforms and how people should vote for them, the, the opposition should get just, amount, just the same amount of time, yeah, which er- is the fair. It's fair. Yeah, it's fair. The fairness doctrine. Is that around now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. They got rid of that. Uh, but that means that, you know, Jello Biafra actually got television coverage, even though a lot of the coverage had the, like, you know, like, look at this weirdo. <laughs> let's, uh, let's listen to one of the, the, short seri- the short pieces. One candidate who took his campaign to the streets today in a way that only he can. Jello Biafra, the lead singer in the punk rock group the dead Kennedys, he held a news conference at City Hall. He then went on to uh, do what he calls shaking babies and kissing hands. He also went on a whistle-stop tour through parts of San Francisco today on a BART train. No telling how he'll do in the elections, but his philosophy is summed up in his campaign slogan, there's always room for jello. I love this. Oh, all of us here at the studio are having quite a laugh at that. <laughs> we all think it's quite amusing. Up next with sports, because that's what it was. It was one of those, uh, it was a, a news of the weird type thing, yeah. like right right before the sports cast, like a little bit of a chuckle. And right between the, the, the cat show. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but it was also, you know, he went, he did some interviews, uh, and, you know, he always said, when they would ask, like, how can we take you seriously as a candidate? His line was, I am no more of a joke or no less of a joke than anybody on the ballot. Right. So he was, you know, he took it seriously, but he also knew that he wasn't going to win. But even though he didn't win, he actually did a lot better than you think he would. 
He ended up getting 6,591 votes and came in fourth place out of 10 candidates. That's pretty good. It's a major American city. It's, it's that's, pretty good. That's 3.79% of the vote. He got almost 4% of the vote. Yeah. And after losing him and the and the dead Kennedys, the rest of the band, and all their friends enjoyed a fun victory party at the Mabue Gardens. <laughs> good for them. Well, of course, Feinstein won. And before San Francisco knew it, landlords were allowed to raise rent on vacated apartments as high as they wanted. Before, there was an ordinance against that. You know, you can only raise it by a certain percentage. After this, landlord, if say your rent's the rent on this apartment's $500, they can charge $2,000 on the next tenant. And that's exactly what they did. And what that led to was forced evictions so landlords could make those apartments vacant. And because of Diane Feinstein and her veto of rent control provisions, San Francisco is now one of the most unaffordable cities on the planet, a mere shadow of what it was before she came into office. So if you want someone to blame for the way San Francisco is now, look no further than Senator Diane Feinstein, <laughs> still in office today. Well, don't take it from us. Read this shit. It's real. <laughs> Yeah, this is yeah, we're not giving you opinions here. This is fucking fact. <laughs> is America's primary system working? Is the electoral college still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, going off the attention Jello got from his mayoral run and the wild success of the California Uber Alice single, it was selling out fucking everywhere, the Dead Kennedys were invited to play the Bammy Awards in March of 1980. And that's it's about as lame as it sounds. Well, it's the Bammy. It, <laughs> it comes from a, a local music magazine they had there, uh, the Bay Area Music, the BAM. Band, yeah. And, and and its award show was their version of the Grammys, hence the Bammies. Yeah, and it was about as hip as the Grammys. <laughs> so, yes, Dead Kennedys <laughs> were asked to play California Uber Alice to make it a little bit more hip. Yeah, because there was a, the Clash was getting really big in England at that time. And, you know, the, of course, the Bammies who were fucking oblivious were like, well, why don't we have anything punk going on in America in 1978? <laughs> and so they asked the dead Kennedys to play and in order to give themselves the cred, the, the kind of cred that they would have if they had, say, the Clash. Right. And so they decided, well, they they want us to do California Uber Alice, but we don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and Ted and I, Ted had an idea for a song, so he wrote a good part of it, and it's called "Pull My Strings." It's really fun. And it's they're like, okay, we're gonna do this. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, you can. This whole performance is uh, featured on the uh, singles collection "Give Me Convenience" or "Give Me Death." It's really fucking great. 
So the dead Kennedys go on stage, all wearing matching suits, button-up raincoats, and skinny ties, and they start playing California Uber Alice. Yeah, and the bass line comes in, and then... Jello goes, stop! Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! And the band stops playing. Jello yells, we gotta prove we're adults now. We're not a punk rock band. We're a new wave band. We're a new wave band. <laughs> yes, because, you know, <laughs> back then it was a little more interchangeable. But punk and new wave were interchangeable. Yes. Like now we know like new wave is much more uh, attached to the 80s. But back then, yeah, people called the Ramones a new wave band. Yeah, and so they took off their overcoats. Yeah, and when they took off their overcoats, like they all had a big S spray painted on their shirts, and then they pulled out ties from their collar, and when they pulled out these skinny ties, you know, it came down as a straight line, and the S became a dollar sign. Oh, that's clever, that's clever. <laughs> dollar signs across their chest. Yeah. And they started playing Pull My Strings, and the guys running the show, the whole Bammy show, with the headsets on, uh, they were just standing side stage from the, just waving, trying to get them <laughs> no. to cut it, stop it, stop it, stop it. But Dead Kennedys kept going. And you know what? Some people were into it. Yeah. And the song actually made it live on on air, on the radio. The whole thing was being played live on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the whole thing, like, it does seem, a li- it seems a little hokey now, but it's one of the, it's like, we, we've talked about it before. It's kind of like you, wa- you watch a Marx Brothers movie and it just seems hopelessly hokey and it seems hopelessly hack. That's because the Marx Brothers were the first ones to do that joke. Right. And the Dead Kennedys, they were the first ones to completely and totally say fuck you to the music industry as often and as loudly as they could. And this was the loudest they ever did it. And, you know, as I said, we have a recording of this song because for what, like, it kind of starts off, they play My Sharona a couple times. Oh, but my Payola. My Payola, of course. Of yeah, course. It, it sounds hokey, but hey, they're the first ones to do it. And the song's actually pretty, it's fucking great. I, I love the song. Yeah, it's very, it's very catchy. It's, it's very yeah. new wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and about and it has a bunch of different parts to it. You know, like they they do a little my, a riff on my Sharona, except they sing my Paola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. yeah still, we get it. We, get, we it. get it. Yeah, yeah. We get it. We get it. But then in the middle of the song, Jello Biafra starts a sing along. <laughs> but there's just one problem: is my cock big enough? Is my brain small enough for you? To make me a star Give me a toot I'll sell you my soul Pull my strings and I'll go far Give me a toot I'll show you my soul Pull my strings and I'll go far Funny thing about that is 
to me, it sounds like a fucking Guns N' Roses song off a Use Your Illusion. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably like, that's pretty catchy. (laughs) Well, you you know, that whole arena rock style, like guitar solo that Ray did. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That was like part of the fun thing, like where they were just kind of trying to show like, yes, all this whatever mainstream music stuff is pretty boring so they all started yawning towards yeah. it while while Ray is playing the guitar with his teeth and he's on his <laughs> knees and everything like they're they're really uh getting it uh theatrically like showing it in a in a funny way yeah in a very funny way and it, and if you see that like the pictures from it and you see like the video from it it's a lot funnier if you see, because it's one of those things where we're yes. explaining the joke throughout. And it doesn't, <laughs> I don't know why we're doing that. <laughs> but well, I mean, it is it is important uh, to show them just again thumbing their nose at the entire record industry. Like they, right. any other band would see this as a an opportunity for a showcase. Like the these are you know we're they're an unsigned band at this time, and any other band would see it as an opportunity to get a record contract or to get booked you know up and down uh, the West Coast. But the Dead Kennedy saw it as this is gonna be so funny. Do you want to know? <laughs> do you want to know what what the record industry thought? What do they think? Oh, they weren't so pleased. <laughs> they were not pleased. There were celebrities in the audience like Boz Skaggs. Oh, no. Boz Skaggs doesn't like me. And Carlos Santana. Oh, no. Allegedly walked off mid-song. Yeah. Allegedly. Uh, but but there were other uh, other people like uh, Eddie Money and Steve Smith, the drummer for Journey, yeah. who loved it and told Jello how great it was. Two musicians that song was fucking pointed directly at. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it just it tells you, I would imagine Eddie Money has a pretty good sense of humor. About yeah, himself. he's probably like that's adorable. Yeah. That's that's really funny. I like that. You know, I'm I'm sure that there were hundreds of people who who cared, even if they didn't like the song, like washing the dishes a week later, just being like, "Is my, my cock, cock big?" big enough? <laughs> it's in my head again. I get it. So after the Bammies, the Dead Kennedys got a call from a man named Bill Gilliam in the UK, who had an offer for the band to tour England. But since it was hard to tour on a single. Which we learned already. Which we learned already. (laughs) Bill asked if they had enough material to record an LP. Since they had more than enough, in fact, they had enough to overflow to the second album, they were put in touch with Ian McNeigh of Cherry Red Records to work out a deal to record and release the first full-length album from the San Francisco punk scene. But while that deal was crystallizing, the band decided to release another single. This one, which became quite possibly the band's most well-known song, was another critique of the type of American complacency and condescension that led to tragedy both at home and abroad. That song was Holiday in Cambodia.
The Devil's Interval. <laughs> so yeah, Jello wrote the lyrics as a reaction against the spoiled college kids he had to deliver pizzas to when he lived in Colorado. Just like the song Terminal Preppy that he wrote, of course, that that came out later. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same idea of, of the complacency of, of the kids his age. Yeah, it's like you think you're so fucking great. Go to Cambodia. Yes, but it's like it's sending all of these you know white privileged preppy assholes that he absolutely hated. Uh, and like send them where there are actually problems because at this time like Cambodia was uh, a fucking nightmare this was in the middle of the the Khmer Rouge uh, regime this was you know this is the killing fields of Cambodia mm-hmm. millions of people were dying in Cambodia at the time men in the black pajamas that's right so they first started working on holiday in Cambodia during their early rehearsals together and Jello brought in the song and it sounded more like a, a Ramon song more like chainsaw yeah and so Ray and Klaus like they tried it out and but they didn't like it and they they just they're just like we don't want to use this and Jello was actually hurt by the, this refusal. Yeah, yeah, it, it was the first time they refused to, to to play a piece of music that he brought in. So Jello kind of stepped outside for a little bit. He was a little hurt. <laughs> I've had sad time in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone's had sad time in the bathroom. It's like, oh, okay, well that's that's fine. <laughs> I guess, but then Klaus started playing around with a bass line. And Jello heard it from the bathroom and ran out and said, that's it. That's it. Oh, God. Okay, let's change around my crappy song. Okay, Ray, get your guitar. Get your echoplex. We're going to put this together even better. And then later when Ted came in, he came up with the drum parts. So the band ended up jamming together as a unit and truly wrote this song together. Yeah. Now, I'd be fucking flabbergasted if that was the first time that any of you listening ever heard Holiday in Cambodia. I mean, it's just, it's the most well-known Dead Kennedy song. I figure everyone's heard it at least once. And if you haven't, cool too. But I also wouldn't be surprised, even if you had heard it a million times, if a certain word in that first verse had escaped you for all the years you've been listening. Yes, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It escaped you until I pointed, yeah. For a while, yeah, for a while there. Well, in case you never noticed, the song has a pretty hard inward in the first verse but as we said this is jello singing as a character this is him singing as the white privileged boulder colorado assholes and it admittedly came from a much better place than say like jeffrey lee pierce of the gun club or even x in the song los angeles in which they sang as a racist character the farrah fawcett minor mm, who mm-hmm. you know left los angeles because she was racist but also uh, so she could go try to fuck captain sensible in London. There's, okay. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and even so, Jello said that he agonized over the use of the word in that song. But ultimately, he decided to leave it in at the urging of producer Geza X. So, at the very least, this unwise decision was a group effort. Right. And actually, they don't. he, he didn't perform it uh, that way again for a while. After a while, actually. Just, he changed it to, to blacks instead. Yes, of course. Well, Jello said he wanted to drive home the condescension of the type of privileged white college kids who would obliviously use a racial slur 
while saying they know how black people feel because they listen to a lot of music made by black artists. It's essentially a guy in a truck with a Confederate flag blasting Tupac. And this decision is kind of ironic on a whole other fucking level because it also showed that Jello didn't realize that this wasn't his <laughs> word to use either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yes. In the end, though, I mean, it's hard to make a fucking judgment on a 20-year-old from 1978 with good intentions. And while the decision to use the word was misguided at best, there's no denying that everything in the song around the word is still a fantastic achievement in music. Yes, I mean, like, the the lyrics, most of the lyrics, let's say, uh, (laughs) they're they're written in a very clever standpoint, especially for a 20-year-old. It's extreme. It's an extremely clever song, you know, like Holiday in Cambodia, like where people dress in black. You know, it's like it's like holiday because that because it also shows that he knew a lot about Cambodia. Yes. <laughs> like people dress in black that came, you know, the the black pajamas that they used to make prisoners wear. Like it was there was a lot to it. You know, there was a fucking and, it, and that's just the lyrics. That doesn't even count East Bay Ray's insane guitar. You know, and the way he wrote that song, you know, the the reason why I said the devil's into them (laughs) is because that's, you know, he played that song in a flatted fifth, which was a key that uh, back in medieval times, medieval musicians would be hanged for using that key because it was considered to be music that would bring the devil to the earth. And he used that with fucking wonderful accuracy that's good i mean it is it is like a horror story that that is what it is it's a real life horror story that we're trying to bring to light to to the audience yeah and so what happens that they asked gazer x who was a sound engineer and a producer who he'd worked with the screamers and the germs and then later he's worked with a million people yeah he had seen the dead kennedys play at the mabue opening for the screamers in which where he was a sound man of course and he was super impressed with holiday in cambodia he said i got chills and and ray using the echoplex was genius because the echoplex being like a tape delay you, you you can hear an echo yeah. within the song, which which makes uh, Ray's guitar sound really eerie and frightening. Yeah, I mean it's something that's more reserved for the big studio, the big stadium acts. It's more, it's much more home and surf. But he used this to fantastic effect. Yes. Let's listen. Let's listen to this fucking solo. <laughs> like you're being chased through the jungle yeah. of Cambodia. <laughs> it feels like there is a, a man with a gun behind you that is going to kill you. <laughs> it's what makes it so fucking good. I want to see a high school production of Dead Kennedys the Musical. <laughs> I will fund that. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. We'll, we'll do it. So, as I said, like, Geza X was very in, very interested in the Dead Kennedys after he saw them. And a few weeks later, he got a call from them saying, hey, can you record our second single called Holiday in Cambodia? And he's like, yeah, fuck yeah, I will. 
<laughs> and Giza said, working with these guys was so intense, but in the best way because they came in, uh, they already studied. Yeah. They they came in already knowing exactly how they want to do this, but also open to to hearing other ways to 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 make the sound better. All what's best for the show, which is always important. Always, yeah. It was always what was best for the band because they knew what they wanted, but they also put in the time to get the sound that they wanted. Yes. Uh, they had it in their head, and they got the dead Kennedys put in the time yeah. when it came to the studio. <laughs> like Jello, he brought in his lyric chart with notes and, and, and words circled and underlined to show like where the sound needed to go. And he, along with other members, uh, would help on the switchboard, switching things in and out because nothing was automatic at that t- time. And also they had they just could only afford a very cheap recording studio. So there were three or more doing a soundboard at the same time and, and doubling up on the guitars, doubling up on the vocals, quadrupling it on the chords making it even more powerful even with all the equipment that we're surrounded by that barely worked (laughs) (laughs) no it's an insanely powerful song and speaking of powerful for the b-side of the holiday single dead kennedys chose a song that a lot of you probably remember from tony hawk's pro skater (laughs) i know a lot of you are probably wondering when's he gonna bring up tony hawk (laughs) (laughs) although the story behind police truck is highly disturbing and still relevant to this day. Because when you're playing Tony Hawk, you're not really listening to the lyrics all that much. But pay attention to this one. fucking great for skating Greg. <laughs> I, I guess you could call it that yes <laughs> but the lyrics were inspired by a story out of oakland in which a group of police officers were caught abducting sex workers off the street and raping them in the back of a police van hence police truck and after hearing the story jello penned the manically violent lyrics about cops beating citizens until they shit their pants before dragging a sex worker off the street screaming so they could gang rape her on the clock. And it all ended with a verse about how the left papers might whine a bit, but the guys at the station, they don't give a shit. Dispatch calls, are you doing something wicked? No siree, Jack. We're just giving tickets. Maybe we should cancel that high school production that we're producing right now. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that. I mean, I don't know how the act outs should go. You know what? Let's Let's... Let's table it. Back to this table it. Let's table it. (laughs) And so, with two classic singles under their belt, the Dead Kennedys were ready to record their first full-length album. And that's where we'll pick back up for part three. Yes! 
Yes. Oh gosh, we have. There's a lot more. <laughs> As we're saying, there's so like, much we're more. We're going moment by moment on this. Yeah, it's gonna be a while. Well, because we love we love the band, uh, and we think they got a great story. So uh, thank y'all so much yes. uh, for oh, coming along with us on this fucking journey. And special thanks, very very special thanks uh, to Chris Munsky, who's from Colorado. Uh, thank you so much for sending me the liner notes about the healers on the compilation album, and to Dalton Rasmussen, who released this compilation album that came out a while back with that song that you know the original California Uber Alice song that the healers played with dancing assholes uh, that compilation album is called Rocky Mountain Low the Colorado musical underground of the late 1970s and it was very cool that Chris reached out and was able to send me this information because that that is what I appreciate the most is it's like a exchange of information like uh, we, we do our best on this show and then some people send us some really cool shit and just uh, thank you so much and a lot of times we get to use it which is great love it so much yeah yeah I, I mean we did get to listen to the uh the uh, original 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 version of california uber alice that they recorded in a fucking pizza hut yeah because one of the guys had to work that night probably and, well he had access to he's like i have a key <laughs> um you know he had access to yeah. after hours at the pizza yeah. hut but you know it's just a bunch of kids fucking around you yeah. know like anybody who was in a band in high school that you know like was just kind of like experimental kind of punky like you know what that sounds like yeah and if you want to listen to it yeah go check out uh, that compilation I haven't got to listen to the whole compilation but I'm sure it's full of just fucking I love I love those like local uh, genre compilations they're always so fucking cool yeah. so yeah thank you so much for sending that man we really appreciate it uh, and if you guys want uh, your very own no dogs in space t-shirts uh, just go to lastpodcastmerch.com uh, of course it's uh, the design is done by Matt Wise thank you very much thank Matt you. Wise as always uh, and as far as you know all right, release days. Let's talk about this for a sec. So, <laughs> we, so, so in order to give the best episode we possibly can, I th- we think it should probably be best if we say our release date is somewhere between the hours of, thir- of Thursday and Friday. <laughs> but we promise we'll get there right when you're in the shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the release date, yeah, no, from now on, yeah, it's, it's Thursday or Friday because sometimes... You know, we need uh, a little a little bit of extra time. And, you know, we we know you guys would much rather have a better show and wait an extra day for it than have a mediocre show. You know, because that's that, how we. F- yeah, that's yeah, yeah. how we feel. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's there was. Yeah. That there. We want something to be good eventually instead of bad forever. Yeah. Uh, and we pass the savings on to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and uh, if you guys, uh, if any of you out there uh, are in a band, if you're uh, in a band that's, you know, trying to get some attention, you know, of course, every, at the end of every single show, we play a uh, one of the bands that sends in uh, a submission. We've had so many great ones so far. Uh, if you have a band that you want to get played on the show, you want to get some attention, send your music to no dogs in space at gmail.com, either a Spotify link or a Bandcamp link uh, or attach an MP3, whatever. Uh, the band this week out of the UK is the Morphics. Oh, they're fun. They're fun. They, they've definitely got they've got a big Dead Kennedys vibe. Uh, they also, you know, they're vibing on the Cramps, B fifty twos, Stooges. Uh, it pretty much, if you listen to the show, you're gonna like the Morphics. Uh, so we're gonna play a song from their debut EP. It's the EP is called Attack of the Morphics. Yeah, I like it. And the song is Gotta Get Me Out of My Head. It's cool as shit. Yeah, just enjoy it. And yeah, go uh, check it out. And then, you know, when uh, live shows start coming back, you know, go see the Morphix live. Because I know we got plenty of UK listeners out there. 
Hello. Hello. <laughs> I am. I am waving towards east. <laughs> Is that? No, you're waving uh, south. Uh, you know what? It, it's the theater of illusion <laughs> that I'm trying to do here. <laughs> Thank y'all very much. As always, here's the Morphix. We'll see y'all next week. Goodbye. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.